Welcome to The West Steps, a podcast by the Colorado Children's Campaign that explores issues impacting Colorado kids and families. Colorado's 2023 legislative session is over. Now we enter the period of time where we figure out what exactly happened and how it will affect our communities and our lives. A few numbers to consider. This year, legislators introduced 680 bills, resolutions, and memorials. Many of these tackled issues that directly affect kids and families, from mental health to gun violence to access to college. The Children's Campaign team analyzed 217 of these bills, took positions on 70, and testified on 23. In this episode, we're going to hear from several people on our policy team about the seven bills that were the Children's Campaign's priorities this year. Our team focused on making sure that Colorado did not backslide on supporting kids and families as policies put in place during the public health emergency come to an end. We advocated to make sure our K-12 schools are funded more equitably and that our childcare providers have resources they need to care for our youngest kids. And we responded to a changing national context by securing funding for reproductive health care in the wake of the Dobbs decision and coverage for preventive services amid challenges to the Affordable Care Act. These are all policies we believe will help continue to shift our state systems so they serve our kids and families more effectively and more equitably. You can learn more about this work on our website, coloradokids.org. In the meantime, let's hear from our policy team. Senior policy analyst Megan Ives is here today to talk a little bit about our youth success work. Hi, Megan. Uh, we're so happy that you're here with us today. Can you introduce yourself to the podcast audience? Yes, thanks. My name is Megan Ives. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the senior policy analyst here at the Children's Campaign. Um, and Megan is very involved in the work we call Youth Success, which focuses a lot on kids in that K-12 um, age and what's happening in our public schools. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the Public School Finance Act, which was Senate Bill 2387. There's a lot in this bill, but among other things, it's going to create a task force of school finance experts to deliver recommendations about how to modernize our school finance formula and make it more equitable. It's also going to fully fund something called the Mill Levy Override Match Fund, which is going to help support school districts that have less ability to raise money at the local level because they have lower property wealth. Um, and those are just a few of the things that it does. Um, Megan, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little about why these changes matter and how they're likely to affect K-12 students and schools. Yeah, so first, I think the task force is really exciting to us at the Children's Campaign because, um, you know, it's a really narrow and prescriptive charge to actually change the funding formula, the pieces in it that are the most broken. Um, so there's been many conversations over over the years on how to modernize the formula um, to really make it more equitable and student-centered and how it um, allocates money to children across the state. And this task force, we think, really establishes a vehicle to propose these concrete changes um, that can be implemented next session. Another exciting piece in the bill is around increased funding on the Mill Levy Override Match Fund. So this was something that the Children's Campaign worked on last year with Senate Bill 202, um, to establish this targeted state investment, which brings additional money to our lowest wealth school districts. So these are districts that we know struggle to raise funds to support, sorry, struggle to raise local property funds 
to support their districts. Um, and here the state is stepping in to meet these student needs. This bill also decreases the budget stabilization factor, which is the amount of money legislators have been removing from K-12 schools to support other priorities. And it commits to eliminating the budget stabilization altogether by fiscal year 2024. That will let Colorado say it's fully funding its schools for the first time in years. What impact is this change likely to have on schools and school districts? Yeah, I think increased school funding um, is awesome. And I think this also represents an important milestone once the budget stabilization factor is truly eliminated. Um, big milestone for our state in meeting a constitutional requirement that voters laid out years ago. Um, but we know from districts and from our understandings of resources that schools continue to need that I think there will be additional funding prospects in the future and that for our schools to truly have the resources they need um, for youth to be successful and, and live happy lives, I think they're going to need additional investments. And we are looking forward to being part of the process for um, figuring out how best to do that and how to allocate them equitably. So if I'm a student or a teacher, um, is there any way that my life might change as a result of uh, anything that came out of this Public School Finance Act this year? Yeah, so there's increased funding for rural schools in the amount of 30 million. And then when you um, factor in the additional money coming from um, this mill levy override match fund to the tune of 23 million, that's quite a bit of funding that will now be going to um, students, especially in many smaller rural districts with low property wealth. So we're really excited about the potential for that funding to bring increased resources to those schools, um, whether that be teachers, um, up to upgrades to buildings or additional personnel. Awesome. Um, so concrete changes this year and then through this task force, hopefully some changes in the long term that will make things more equitable and make sure that there's funds in schools and districts that really needed in the long term. So switching gears, Megan, I know this was your first legislative session with the Children's Campaign, and um, I'm wondering if what you would say was the most memorable part of the session for you. Yeah, um, it was really an interesting session and exciting to be with the team here at the Children's Campaign for my first year. Um, I think I really appreciated all the conversations around youth mental health and trying to get additional resources to schools to be able to address, address um, the youth mental health crisis. You know, we know the statistics and we've had conversations around um, what young people in Colorado are dealing with and sort of how those mental and behavioral health challenges show up in schools. And I think legislators, advocates, and young people themselves really put in a lot of work in the last few years in this session, especially to bring those issues to the surface and try to come up with solutions that will really benefit um, young people, teachers, and staff in our schools across the state. So I'm feeling hopeful about the impact that some of those bills around youth mental health and you know, mental health screenings can have um, for young people. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now that we've heard about our youth success legislative priorities, let's talk about our early childhood work. We have Lauren Corboy here with us today to talk a bit more about some of the changes that passed in 2023. 
Hi, Lauren. Uh, I am hoping that you can introduce yourself to our audience before we talk about uh, the 2023 session together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm Lauren Corboy, and I am an early childhood policy analyst for the campaign, and I started in January. Awesome. And you were on the podcast earlier this session talking about the importance of play, and we're happy to have you back today. Thank you so much. So let's talk a little bit about the Child Care Contribution Tax Credit, which was House Bill 23-1091 this year. This is a tax credit that's going to bring in an estimated $60 million a year to providers across the state, and it's one of the state's largest tax credits. Um, how is this bill going to impact kids, families, providers? What are you excited about? So the main thing that this bill will do is encourage folks to be um, giving monetary contributions to child care programs. Um, and that is obviously super important right now because in absence of a really robust funding mechanism for child care across the state and the country, um, it is really important that we're encouraging folks to be giving money when they can um, and encouraging that in a, in a financial way. So when providers are getting donations, that means they're able to spend money on really important things like facilities updates, equipment updates, um, staffing, um, rent for, for their program, things like that. So it's really, it's helping out providers by encouraging people to give to them. Um, and it is a really robust way to support care in our state. So the second bill that we're going to talk about also focuses on funding for early childhood. Uh, that's HB 23-1290, which is going to refer a question to Colorado voters in November to help retain funds from Prop E to support Colorado's universal preschool program. Prop E, you might remember, was a 2020 ballot initiative that raised taxes on tobacco and nicotine products to support universal pre-K. The state took in more money than it estimated that it would and needs to go to voters to make sure those funds can actually support early childhood. So tell us a little bit about the impact you're hoping this bill will have. How's, how's this going to affect early childhood care and education? So basically, um, as you as you said, um, because we collected a lot more money than we communicated to voters in the blue book um, when Prop E first passed, we just have to, because of Tabor, go back and make sure that voters are okay with us keeping that money. Um, so it's really straightforward. There's a lot of precedent for this um, for this type of ballot initiative, um, and. What this money will do is allow us to continue to support universal preschool and make sure that it's funded as strongly as we can. Um, hopefully what that would look like would be more slots, um, supporting more providers and being able to either um, create or expand programs. Hopefully those providers would be able to then um, then maybe even maintain or expand infant toddler programs if they already um, if they're already working with those. So it really just, again, is a way of supporting our providers the best way that we can and making sure that um, that we can provide universal preschool to as many kids in this state as we can. Great. And these are all just steps to addressing this challenge of affordable child care in our state. A million percent. I know every parent and provider out there knows exactly how challenging that's been the last several years. Awesome. Um, so I also wanted to ask you uh, to reflect on what the most memorable part of this year's legislative session was for you. What comes to mind? For me, it was definitely um, testifying for the first time. I just really enjoyed it. It was for a bill to support bonuses for universal preschool providers, which as a former educator, I just so strongly believe in. And it was so exciting to be able to tell legislators exactly why we need to continue to support our providers 
Um, and I was really grateful that the Department of Early Childhood is focusing on supporting providers in such a strong way. So I enjoyed being part of that process and testifying alongside Dr. Lisa Roy, um, kind of a little fangirl moment for me. So that was probably my most memorable part of session this year. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. All right. Next, we've got Hunter Nelson with us here today to talk a little bit about some of our health priorities. Hunter, can you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Hunter Nelson. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a policy analyst here at the Colorado Children's Campaign. Awesome. Well, happy to have you here today to talk a little bit about these um, two really important issue areas. So first, let's talk about HB 231330, House Bill 231330. This is a bill that means that Colorado is now going to um, provide continuous Medicaid and CHIP coverage to children from birth to age three. It's also going to provide 12 months of coverage for Coloradans who are leaving state prisons. Um, and the bill is going to create a study of how to improve the state Medicaid program beyond these changes that it's making on a shorter term to help support people's health, food security, and housing stability. Um, so continuous eligibility is something we explored in depth a couple months ago on the podcast. Uh, it's potentially a really impactful policy. Can you tell us a little bit about when this bill is going to take effect and what you're hoping the impact is going to be for kids and families? Yeah, of course. So the bill requires the Department of Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing to submit a waiver to the Centers for Medicaid or, and Medicaid Services by April 1st of 2024 in order to implement these continuous coverage policies with the goal of it taking effect to January 1st of 2026. And what we're really hoping to see in terms of impact for Colorado kids and families is that more families are not, especially with young children ages zero to three, are not worrying about having to go through sometimes the burdensome renewal process um, when it comes to renewing their Medicaid or Child Health Plan Plus coverage. They're just able, especially with young kids, you know, you're running around, you're trying to battle so many things at once in life that it can be really hard to have to take the time to fill out a packet, return it to the um, department and go through all that administrative hurdle. So it's really going to um, keep family, give families a peace of mind that they will have their coverage for their young child through ages zero to three, especially when the American Academy of Pediatricians recommends that children ages by the eighth time they're age three, that they have about 13 well-child visits. And also, this policy is really building off of lessons that we learned during the pandemic. Um, during the pandemic, folks were locked into their Medicaid and here in Colorado, Child Health Plan Plus coverage continuously without having to go through the renewal process, regardless of changes in their income. And Colorado is one of the five states that saw the most significant gains in child health care coverage because of this. So despite this policy going into effect a little bit later than um you know, the renewals are already going to already beginning to happen um, for the public health emergency um, unwind, the continuous coverage mandate unwind. Um, we're still hoping that this policy, you know, we're building off of those lessons of the pandemics that if something like this were to happen in the future, we still have some more some safety, more of a safety net for families knowing that they'll have their children zero to three will have continuous coverage. And then folks leaving carceral settings as well will be able to have that 12 months, you know, to get on their favorite, the reentry process is um, a lot, especially for folks that are leaving prison who may have been there for a long time. And so they don't have to worry about going through, um, you know, any, like I said, administrative hurdles when it comes to um, Renewing and keeping their Medicaid coverage. 
Awesome. Yeah. And we know that some of those people are likely parents as well, um, who, you know, having that health coverage in, in their family is really important. Um, yeah. So this, this bill really exciting to have a, families with kids zero to three have that coverage. So um, thank you for telling us a little about it. I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the work that we did around family planning in this session. We were thrilled to see the passage of Senate Bill 23-189. This is a law that's going to reduce surprise billing, remove patient cost sharing for reproductive health care services offered to privately insured Coloradans, and um, it's going to codify some coverage of Affordable Care Act protected preventive services in our state. This is the topic we talked about um, a few weeks ago uh, in the wake of some federal court uh, rulings that put preventive services at risk. This bill is going to help make sure that people have access to them. Um, and family planning is a part of that. Uh, uh, family planning and reproductive health services are a part of that bill. Um, another family planning oriented uh success this year was additional funding for the family planning program at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, which is going to be able to serve people at clinics across the state, um, at hopefully more people because of a funding increase in the long bill that we advocated for. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're hoping the impact of these bills will be? Definitely. So in terms of the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment's Family Planning Program, we were able to secure that additional funding. We're hoping that roughly about 1,200-ish more Coloradans will have access to the reproductive health care services they need at these clinics that otherwise maybe wouldn't have. Um, we still see there's still a large gap that we need to fill. Funding is still isn't um, adequately sufficient to meet the needs of all the Coloradans in our state who need these services, but at least in some additional funding folks will be able to have the security that they can do that, and especially when these services are often time sensitive. So about 1,200 Coloradans is what we're estimating, which would be, uh, which is really exciting. You know, it's, it's still, it's still a good win. Um, in terms of the uh, preventative services, um, we're seeing, you know, folks that especially like in, who are covered by state regulated plans will still do not, they don't have to worry that they're going to have to pay for, um, these preventative services due to the, the um, court cases that have been um, moving through and affecting folks nationwide. And so it's just really exciting that we have that codified here in Colorado. Again, families can have that peace of mind that they're not going to have to pay out of pocket for some of these critical preventative services. Um, and also part of Senate Bill 23189 is that it requires the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to create a family planning collaborative, um, which is will consist of advocates and community members and providers um, to provide recommendations on how, you know, we can best serve um, and meet the reproductive health care needs of folks in our states. And so I think that that's really exciting and thinking about more ways that we can be flexible and creative with how, uh, it's especially in just a, such an uncertain la uh, nationwide landscape in the wake of um, the Dobbs decision that here in Colorado, we are rising to the occasion as a state where these um, services are legal, that we're meeting the needs of Coloradans and out-of-state travelers seeking care, that we can rise to the occasion and provide care to all that need it. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of exciting things happening. Great. Um, and from your point of view, what was the most memorable part of this legislative session? The most memorable part? Um, that's a hard one, because I feel like there were so many great moments. But I think 
for my for me personally, I think a memorable moment was um, testifying at the Joint Budget Committee's public comment period um, with fellow advocates from um, Amanda Carlson from Cobalt, Lauren Smith from Elephant Circle and Soul to Soul Sisters, as well as Kayla Frawley from Progress Now Colorado. I think we um, were able to, it was a really powerful testimony panel. And I think that it was something different than often JBC folks may hear about during the public, um, during those public testimony um, comment periods. And so um, that was my first time like organizing a panel like personally and uh, my first time testifying in front of a committee personally. So um, I think that was probably my favorite part of session. Awesome. And that was all focused on the family planning work that you were just talking about. So helping illustrate why um, this kind of healthcare is so critical right now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Hunter. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, and uh, finally, we're going to speak with Sarah Barnes. Um, Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Could you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Happy to be here this morning. Sarah Barnes, she, her pronouns. Um, I am the Director of Family Economic Prosperity Initiatives here at the Children's Campaign. So this year, um, you were involved with a bill, House Bill 231186, um, and this was a bill focused on allowing people who are in residential eviction proceedings to choose whether they want to participate in person or virtually. Um, and we are hopeful through the research that this is going to reduce default judgments and reduce evictions overall. Um, can you talk a little bit about this bill and the impact you're hoping that it's going to have um, on renters in our state? Yes, um, I'm really excited about this bill passing this session we were really grateful to work with the Colorado Poverty Law Project on House Bill 1186 this session. Um, we know that there are barriers that prevent people often from coming to participate in an eviction proceeding in person. And that's particularly true for families with children, for folks living with disabilities, and for people in rural areas of our state. And when you can't attend your eviction hearing, you automatically are evicted <clears throat> through a default judgment without having actually gone through a hearing. And we know that being evicted has a really profoundly negative impact on kids, on their social emotional well-being, their development, on families' economic prosperity. And it also limits families' housing stability moving forward to have a default judgment on their record. So what 1186 is going to do is allow folks to choose how it's best for them to participate in an eviction hearing, whether that's going in person or whether that's participating virtually. And it's estimated that that's going to allow over an additional 8,000 families to participate in eviction hearings that would not otherwise have participated, which is going to make a huge impact on preventing those default judgment evictions from happening to folks in Colorado. Great. So this is really good progress in terms of um, improving eviction-related policies in our state. We also know that there's a lot more that we could learn about what's happening with evictions in our state. And I know you're thinking about how to improve transparency and fairness in the process. Can you talk a little bit about some of your next steps in this area? Yes, absolutely. Um, so we know that 
data that are included in eviction court filings um, are some of the best tools we have today to quantify housing instability, even though those data points can't fully capture the impact that evictions are having. But that having really high quality statewide eviction data can help us understand the magnitude of housing instability that's experienced by families living in Colorado and help us understand more about who's being evicted and why that's happening. We also know that as of today, getting aggregate data on those critical eviction indicators isn't easy to do in Colorado. And so we're going to be continuing to work with enterprise community partners to advance a policy that would help to identify some data points that should be collected in Colorado from those residential eviction court filings, and then require those data points to be made publicly accessible on a regular basis in some kind of aggregated way that will help us understand more about the impact of evictions in our state um, and help us identify policy solutions to help prevent those evictions moving forward. Great. So this is, I know housing and it's affordability or lack thereof is a big t- conversation topic this um, this year. And this is really, you know, zeroing in on a really uh, important piece of uh, increasing housing stability for families in our state. Um, So switching gears a little bit, can you tell us about what the most memorable part of this year's session was from your point of view? I think for me, honestly, it was just getting to hear and see so many of um, my awesome colleagues here at the Children's Campaign and as well as some of my close, some of our close partners advocating and testifying at the Capitol this session on so many amazing policies that are going to help improve living in Colorado for families. And it was just really exciting to see so many folks out there um, speaking in support of those policies and and doing an awesome job. Great. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing that and for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The West Steps. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about on the podcast, you can send us an email at media at coloradokids.org. The West Steps and the rest of the children's campaign's work is possible thanks to our philanthropic funders and our generous sponsors and donors. If you enjoy resources like The West Steps, consider supporting our work by visiting coloradokids.org. The West Steps is a production of the Colorado Children's Campaign. It was created by Beza to Death. Our producer is Emily Battaglia, and I'm your host, Jackie Zupricki. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.